This is Greg Lazinski, and you're listening to Baseball BBQ. Baseball and BBQ on Long Island, New York. This is episode number 202 of Baseball and BBQ, where the BBQ stands for? You're asking me again, huh? I'm asking you. you. I'm Jeff Leo Cohen, and that is Leonard Hollywood Aberman. We welcome you back to our show, Leonard. Jeff 202 and we have actually three guests three guests and two interviews on the show today oh oh please do tell do tell <laughs> I want to tell we have beloved and he is certainly beloved and you actually you mentioned to him how much New York fans love him uh during the interview and that is Ed Cranepool and our friend uh, Gary Kashik, and they're going to talk all about their book, The Last Miracle, My 18-Year Journey with the Amazing New York Mets. 18 years with the Mets, Jeff, starting at age 17. 17, yes. His roommate was more than twice his age. He's a teenager. I mean, he's not 19. He's 17 years old, and he's signing a Major League Baseball contract. Yes, one of the original New York Mets. Yeah, on the 1969 World Series champion Mets. And Gary has done a phenomenal job writing this book with Ed, and Ed doesn't hold back. Oh, no. No, he does not. And of and course, who else, who, who else do we have? We have Noah Rosen, who is the founder of Forge to Table, and they are incredible knives. We'll tell you all about that as we get up to that interview. But first, Bet Online is your number one source for all your betting needs. Get the latest odds, lines, and matchup reports for baseball, boxing, golf, and more. Bet online continues to be the fastest and easiest way to place your wagers, including live betting and your favorite casino and card games available to play right from your phone. Head to the website or use your mobile device to sign up today and get in on the action. Remember to use promo code BLEAV. That's B L E A V for your 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit. Bet online where the game starts. Jeff, before we get to Ed Cranepool and Gary Kashuk, I should mention someone that actually they are huge Mets fans and 
I, I want to uh, mention them. It's our good friend, Anthony Morosco, and they have a, a group in the Washington, D.C. area called Beltway Mets. And they actually were just, well, when this comes out, that series will be over. But they were at the Nationals uh, Mets series in Washington. And uh, we would just like to send a shout out. Shout out. To Anthony and his group. We appreciate them. They are supporters of our podcast. They listen. So thank you, Anthony. He also sent us some really nice stickers They uh, of Beltway Mets. So Anthony and your group, Beltway Mets, I think you're really going to enjoy this with Ed Cranepool and Gary Kashak. Leonard and I are thrilled to be talking to a 1969 World Series champion. However, our guest story is much more than one magical season. He's an original New York Met who has been through all the highs and lows of baseball. Born in the Bronx and was a legend at James Monroe High School. He retired from baseball after the 1979 season and still ranks third on the most hits and second in going to bat in franchise history. Ed Crapel has a new book called The Last Miracle, My 18-Year Journey with the Amazing New York Mets. With Ed is his co-author, Gary Kasich, who is a mighty fine writer in his own right, including After the Miracle with Ed Crapel. He's also co-authored a book with Cleon Jones called Coming Home and Go the Distance with Tom Tunison. We are welcome, both Gary and Ed, to Baseball and BBQ. Welcome, gentlemen. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you very much. Well, let me start with you. I mean, it was a great book. I really loved reading your biography. You know, you you, started, you grew up in the Bronx. So tell us about growing up in the Bronx by Castle Hill Playground, Jimmy Schifano, and, and Growing up without, without a father, you never knew your father because he was in the army, wasn't he? My uh, dad was killed in the war. Uh, I think my mother was about seven months pregnant. So then she had me and uh, I did stay in the Bronx. And you had a neighbor, a Jimmy, I hope I'm pronouncing his name right, Schifano, who, was, uh, who took you under his wing? Yeah, Jimmy Schaffer was my next door neighbor and uh, he had two boys and a young a little girl. And uh, he took me under his wing and his two boys who were Playing baseball, his oldest son played on my team in, in Little League. And Jimmy took us both under his wing and taught us how to play baseball. And he was the inspiration of my life to really start playing baseball at a Little League age. Oh, excellent. You know, I look at your career and it's almost like a child uh, actor who, you know, talks about how they grew up on the set. I mean, you started playing Major League Baseball at such an early age that you kind of spent part of your childhood almost in the majors. Well, I, I started out in uh, little league baseball at the age of 10. I, they just joined the league and formed the teams, et cetera, and made a field. But we played in the playground. So we had a playground, a schoolyard right alongside our house. It was a concrete field. And, you know, that's where all the guys gathered around and we chose teams and uh, played every day from morning till night. We'd run home in the afternoon for lunch, grab a quick bite and run back to the playground and played. So I played with all the older guys. I was always yeah. two or three years ahead of my time and I played against them and we had a good time. I enjoyed playing and played a lot of things, played basketball, we played baseball, stickball handball, everything at the playground, but that was our life. We didn't go to camp. We didn't spend a lot of time, you know, in organized activities until Little League was formed. 
And at 10 years of age, I was selected for a team and uh, was on the, the Bronx Lions. And uh, that was my team for the next three years. Gary, you and Ed have written a great book. I just wanted to tell you this was uh, extremely enjoyable. Uh, the Last Miracle, I'm sure Jeff already read it, the book uh, cover, but The Last Miracle, My 18-Year Journey with the Amazing New York Mets. It's Ed Cranepool's story. Gary Kashuk is the author. And as we get more into the interview, I just want to tell you guys what a pleasure it was to meet both of you, to see both of you at City Field. It was it was quite the honor. So uh, I, I just wanted to thank you before this got away from us and tell you what how much that meant to us. It was it well, was wonderful. Well. Thank you so much. That's a nice comment. Yeah. Thank you. We hope the fans, you know, who buy the book, you know, read it and enjoy it, have some fun, and maybe Gary and I will do another book. <laughs> yeah. Gary, what, what what was the impetus to uh, approach Ed Cranepool about writing his, his story? We had finished the Cleon Jones book, and um, I called the publisher, Final Books, uh, and said, hey, the 73 Mets are going to have their 50th reunion next year. Why don't we do a book on the 73 Mets? And they liked the idea. Uh, they asked me to find four Mets who might be interested in collaborating with me on that. And so I got a hold of Cleon, who got a hold of Ed. And before you know it, I hooked up with Ed, and Ed said that nobody really wanted to talk about because they lost. And who wants to read about a team that lost? And I said, I think a lot of people would because it was quite an interesting season, last place with a few weeks left in the season, and you're going to the World Series. I thought it was a great story. But as we're talking about this, um, I called the publisher and told them that, you know, it's, it's a done deal. Nobody wants to do it. And they said, wait a minute, Ed Cranepool doesn't have a book. Call Ed and see if he wants to do a book. So that's what I did, and that's how it all started. Well, that's great because we are very happy that you guys wrote, wrote this book. And I wanted to ask you, you know, you have a very unusual, nobody really graduated from high school and signed a pro contract on the same day. How, how was that? Well, it was kind of exciting. The Mets had followed me, of course, for, you know, for like two years in high school. Bubba Janot, who was the scout, he, he watched every game I played. He wanted to make sure I was the real thing. I guess I could hit. And he did follow me right into my high school graduation. And he said to me, I'm coming to your house that night and we're going to sign you. I mean, I had a couple of the ball clubs, you know, looking at me and I didn't know what was going to happen. And I guess everybody was so, uh, you know, well, they all knew the Mets wanted to sign me and he was there at every game. So, you know, they, they kind of backed off a little bit. I mean, nobody made an offer to come to my house that night except the Mets. And when they got there, they said they weren't leaving, and they were there. They oh, were wow. There for a few hours, and uh, Johnny Murphy was the vice president of the ball club, and he wanted to start the contracts pretty quick, and he did. And, uh, you know, we talked for a little while, and one thing after another, and made me a couple of offers. And I, did, I didn't sign right away because my farm director or high school director I actually was a scout for the White Sox, uh, Steve Ray. And I had made a promise to him in high school that uh, I wouldn't sign a contract without talking to him. He wanted to be the last guy to talk to. And I said, OK, I'll give Steve a call. And I did after the Mets made me an offer. And, uh, you know, he said to me, that's a great offer they're offering you. Why don't you take it? Ed? We can't match it. So I wound up taking it. I didn't 
wait around for anybody else. I knew I wanted to play in New York. That was my home. I wanted to play, I guess, with the Mets. They were a new franchise, but I felt, you know, as a kid, you can lead them into the pennant. One player is not good enough to do that, uh, as as you learn very quickly. And I did after signing the contract that it takes multiple players surrounding each other and all performing and, you know, you can finally win that way. And it took us seven years to do it, but that was pretty quick when you think about it, uh, you know, winning a pennant and going to the World Series and winning that. Yeah, yeah absolutely. You, you're still quite young when that happened. One, one of the things that you mentioned in the book is that, you know, you didn't have, you weren't in the minor leagues right away. I mean, you did end up going down to the minors. How did that affect your development by, uh, coming up to the majors, you know, being in the majors right away, right after high school, do you think you would have done, would have been different if you had gone to the minors first? Well, I think I would have been a better, better player playing in the minor leagues, getting some experience maybe for a year or two, developing. At 17, you're not ready to adjust to major league pitching. You have to mature mentally, physically and go out there and play. Remember, my first night in the major leagues, I, I joined the club in California. The opening night pitcher was Sandy Koufax. He just happened to pitch a no-hitter and struck out 13 that night. So I said to Casey, I know I'm <laughs> in for a long career. This looks pretty tough. <laughs> and as I went along, you know, the next night wasn't so bad. I think Drysdale pitched the next night, and then finally Johnny Padres was the weak link of the group. Wow. But as you went went around <laughs> baseball, every ball club had two guys that were ready for the Hall of Fame, and most of them were pitchers back in the 60s. They had some great pitchers. So you don't really develop at 17 against those guys. So if I would have went to the minor leagues like I did on occasion, um, and I always excelled, you would have developed into a, a mature player, produced it you know, what you're capable of doing because living in New York and signing with a New York club makes it very difficult to play. Everybody recognizes you. Everybody knows who you are. They've seen you play. They've seen you lead teams to championships. So they know what to expect. They don't have to ridicule you. If you're playing in the minor leagues, they don't even know where you're playing. You're just developing with the other guys. You're the same age or slightly older than you. But you catch up quickly because you can excel and advance to the major leagues at the proper age. So a couple of years seasoning would have really enhanced my ability. And, of course, my performance as I grew up with the league improved. But you had been around so long that people got tired of seeing your name because you did struggle. And when I say struggle, you, you know, some years you hit 250, 260. They don't, you know, they don't think that's very good. And it's not if you're you're branded as a star and you don't perform right away. And after a couple of years, they say you're over the hill and they make all kinds of, you know, gestures about yourself. And, um, you know, it's pretty tough to play like that. But I, I outlasted them all. And I lasted 18 years with the Mets. Yeah, did. Most games played there. I could have had the most hits, et cetera, if I kept playing. But you know mm-hmm. what? It gets to a point where when you look around the the – the clubhouse and when you come up you're the youngest guy in the organization and by the time you're 34 you look around and you're the oldest guy and when you start losing again i had been up that roller coaster twice 
I wasn't going to take that again at 34, 35, not playing regularly. You're not going to stay around. So you quit. I was going to ask you that you kind of uh, you, you answered my question without me asking it. But you went to James Monroe High School. You're a city boy. You're 17 years old. I was going to ask you about the pressures of being a New York, a New York kid playing in New York. You must have had a lot of people requesting maybe tickets. Uh, I don't know what it was like back then, but did you get asked for a lot of favors? Well, you always did. People would always call you and look for things. And most of the time you could accommodate them, but it gets difficult as you play. And after uh, when you finally got into the World Series, everybody thought that was free. And there are no free tickets in the playoffs and World Series. Everyone has to pay for them. So you have to stop someplace. But it gets difficult because they're always critiquing how you played. Remember, guys you played against in Sandlot baseball, you know, are now teaching you how to hit again. And you make some changes. You make some adjustments as the league gets better. So you have to get better. And, of course, these pitches kept getting better and better. And, and there were some great pitches in the National League. If you look at the rosters in the early 60s, there were so many guys that were great pitchers have gone into the Hall of Fame. So they couldn't be too bad. <laughs> they wouldn't be going in. And they <laughs> just didn't go in on me. Yeah. Gary, I wanted to ask you, what did what did you find out about Ed Cranepool's career that you didn't know what, as you were writing the book? I didn't know about the potential deal, uh, the Seaver deal with the Dodger players. That mm-hmm. uh, is a specific thing of, of that. And there's many other things, but... What I was pleased to hear uh, was the candor um, that Ed showed me throughout the whole book. Um, you know, not afraid to tell the truth. Uh, I could have taken the easy way out and not done that. But I think that was one thing that stood out to me was that the, the truth was there. And I, it was refreshing to hear it uh, told to me this way. So there's many other things throughout that I, none of us knew, really. You know, and finding out as I'm asking these questions, so I could probably list many more things. But what stood out to me is is that. Mm-hmm. And, and Ed, you know, as I was reading the book, and your your first manager is Casey Stengel, and you found out that the Mets wanted to send you down, but Stengel stuck up stuck up for you to, to stick around a few more days to, to collect your bonus. Could you tell us that story? Well, he he was a great personality. I mean, uh, you know, he took a lot of pressure off the early teams for the simple reason that he knew the players were over the hill. We didn't have a team good enough to win the pennant. So he just entertained the press day and night. He'd be the first one to the ballpark, the last one to leave. Well, he originally wanted to um, keep me because I did so well in spring training, but George Weiss, who was the general manager, wanted to send me out and he was looking for something. And by the time the all-star break came the first year, I was struggling a little bit, so I had a contract that was written after 90 days, you got a bonus. Well, the all-star break came up. I just was at 87 days, and Casey, they were sending me out, and Casey agreed to send me out. And then um, after the all-star break, if you did well, you'd be brought back. But it had to be consecutive days. So at the 87th day, the ball club sends me out, and I went in to see Casey and said, Casey, you know, if I would have stayed till after the All-Star break, I would have got a 90, 
uh, a 90 day contract um, and get a bonus. I said they owed me a bonus in three more days. And I was actually off for those three days. He said, well, they can't do that. They got to pay you. I said, well, they weren't going to pay me. Obviously, a contract's a contract. And uh, he went and fought for me. He said, you know, we're not going to send them out today. Today's the 87th day. He's got three days to go. He's off. You know, we'll do it on the 91st day. Well, as it was, what it did was there was another fellow in the minor league, Grover Powell, that came up when they sent me out on the 91st day. He came up and he didn't qualify for his bonus at the end. He wound up with 80 something days. So he had, they had two players with 87, 80 something days and he never got it. He never came back again. They brought him up for the second half of the season. He pitched okay. The next year he got sent back to the minors and disappeared. Mm-hmm. So they had a bunch of guys that they were doing this with, you know, so mm-hmm. this was the same situation, but they were saving the bonus money for all the players because it was written in the contracts, you know, about the 90 consecutive days. But he was he was right there for me and for everybody else on the ball club. Anyone that performed for Casey knew that the manager was behind you and was going to continue. So he stuck up for me. And, and of course, we won the pennant. You know, seven years later, he was still involved in the organization. But he was great for the young players and loved them all. Oh, great. You know, Ed, there's someone on the Mets that you played with that I, I think, I mean, he he's getting his due now, and maybe Met fans give him his due, but I don't think he ever gets his due in baseball, and that's Jerry Kuzman. Uh, I want to ask what it was like to play for him, but when I'm looking at Jerry Kuzman's stats, what's amazing to me is similar to you. You start your career in 62, you play till 80. He started in 67, he played till 85. I mean, and put up some incredible, there were a couple of years, he had some great years. What was it like to play with Jerry Kuzman? And do you think that he gets the the credit that he deserves? I don't think he does. I think he was our best pitcher when it came down to a situation where you had to win. I'd rather have Jerry Kuzman on the mound because he was the toughest competitor we had. Seaver was a great pitcher. He was our marquee player. He was mm-hmm. our, you know, Mr. Wonderful, Mr. Whatever you want to call him, the franchise. But you know what? Kuzman always was there when the going got tough, the tough got going. And Kuzi was tough. He could start a game with nothing and look to be out of the game in two or three innings. But all of a sudden, something would click. He'd get his rhythm back, and the next thing you know, it he would start pitching great. And he he was a very good pitcher and hit the, you know, number two behind Tom Seaver. Seaver, everything was made for him in order. He would go every four days. A guy like Nolan Ryan could have been a star in New York if it wasn't for Tom Seaver, because they pitched everybody regularly, and and Nolan Ryan was the fifth man. Well, in New York in the early time of the year, the weather is not conducive to baseball, a lot of rain outs, but they would always pitch Seaver on the fourth day. So who was eliminated all the time was Nolan Ryan, never pitched on a regular basis and never had control and never could get control because if you pitch every six or seven days, then you come back in five days and then you come back in, you know, nine days. It's crazy. And he couldn't get the ball over the plate. We knew he was the hardest thrower. 
but obviously never could condition himself to really pitch. And he didn't become a star until he got traded a giveaway to the uh, Los Angeles Angels for a player that was over the hill and a couple of rinky dinks that came with us. And it was no, no comparison in that trade. And Ed, I, I say this tongue in cheek is that you, you just loved hitting against Phil Necro, didn't you? <laughs> oh yeah. I, I, I'd get headaches. I got smarter later in the career. I just would take the night off and say, you know what? Let me pinch it. I'll help you in the ninth inning. Otherwise, <laughs> over four doesn't help you very often. <laughs> you described. You said it was like I. I what did you say? It was like trying to hit with a paddle or a big paddle Hitting with a big tennis racket. You know, the ball's <laughs> bouncing around. And the funny thing about Phil is, so many guys did well against him, even though he was a great pitcher and a Hall of Famer. But guys could hit him. He would throw him fastballs, and it was kind of me- mediocre, you know, 80-mile-an-hour fastball, whatever he was throwing, guys would get their base hits. But when I came up, he knew I couldn't hit his knuckleball. He wouldn't throw me a fastball at all. Everything was a knuckleball. If he walked me, he walked me. He didn't care. And I keep swinging and swinging, and nothing had terrible results. Didn't do very well with him. And he made the Hall of Fame on me, I can tell you that, because I didn't <laughs> <laughs> you should be on the plaque with him. <laughs> I should be. I should sign the plaque. You know, you certainly belong in all of it. But, you know, he knew that. You know, a lot of years I played, I didn't have a great hitter behind me. So they would just say, let's throw it near the plate. If we walk him, we walk him. If he mm-hmm. swings, he swings. And I was stupid enough to keep swinging. Gary, which one, which uh, story in the book is one of your favorites of Ed Cranepool? Holy cow. The, uh, when he was in Japan. Oh, the uh, Japan trip. Yeah, the Japan trip was very interesting for me, and he got into the home run duo with uh, Senator O. Right. And the, the Kobe cow was being paraded around. <laughs> when it hit a home run, it came to his side of the dugout, and O hit one and went to that side of the dugout. That whole story is hilarious to me. And uh, really, I uh, had a lot of fun listening to it and, and finding out about it. So Ed, Ed, you you you, you win this bowl and you you own a restaurant. You didn't take it home with you. Well, you had to put it in quarantine for like six months, and you had to pay for, pay for that. You know, I wasn't about to pay for any Kobe beef, even though it was very expensive then, and it's even more expensive now. But uh, I traded it in for a couple of plane tickets back to home. We had finished up the season; they played every game. We we had a whole week of rainout for rainouts. Never played any, so I said, said to the ball club, are we allowed to go home? Well, they said, yeah, you, you can go home, but you have to have a ticket. And we have a charter plane, so nobody has a ticket. So when I won that uh, that bull, I traded the bull in for a um, two plane tickets back to New York. And I was on that plane. I had seven weeks in Japan, and so I, I was ready to go. But the second part is the... Uh... Hank Aaron coming over for the home run hitting contest with O, and he uses Ed's back. Right. And he beat that that arrow. Yeah. 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 Now, uh, I mentioned that you own a restaurant. You own that restaurant with Ron Flaboda out out here on Long Island. That was, how was it being a restaurateur? Well, it was fun until, you know, you do so many things that are wrong. You don't know enough about the business. I know one night Ronnie gets into a big fight with the chef. 
And the time not to get in a fight with, or disagreement with the chef is on Saturday night when you have about 200 reservations and, you know, you, you know you're going to have a big crowd. Well, Ronnie walked over to the restaurant and calls me up and says, you got to get here right away. We've got a problem. So when I run over there, I lived about three blocks from the restaurant. I go in and I, the chef is screaming and yelling at him. Ronnie threw all the steaks away. He threw them all in the garbage. I said, what the hell is going on? He said, these are no good. They were sitting out. They were different colors. They were just looked funny. What the chef was doing was aging the beef. <laughs> and, and Ronnie didn't realize that. And he's throwing them out. And, you know, the next thing you know, we threw away a couple hundred steaks. And, uh, you know, I said, Ronnie, you better stay out of the kitchen. We're going to kill everybody, you know, and. He wound up never going back in there and talking to the chef. And the chef quit that night right mm. on the spot. <laughs> he said, I've had enough. I'm not taking it from somebody who doesn't know what he's doing. And the guy quits. And we had a problem that night not being able to serve steak that was thrown away. So <laughs> it, it created a problem. He's funny. <laughs> Ronnie is a great guy, but sometimes he does a little bit too much talking when he doesn't you know, fit in the lineup there. <laughs> And uh, he he was my coach at fantasy camp, so uh, he 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 helped me with he helped me with my swing. I tell you that. <laughs> well, I hope I hope you still have it. Then I tell you what, he I couldn't do. help himself. <laughs> <laughs> so, so Ed, you would spend seven weeks in Japan, but you won't spend or you wouldn't spend six weeks in Buffalo for the movie The Natural. And uh, your wife was a little upset with you when you went and saw that movie. Why don't you tell us about well, that? How you could have? She, she was upset at the end. You know, she when she <laughs> saw the movie, the movie came out very well, but she didn't realize I had played there one season. I got sent out, and I I played about six weeks in in Buffalo, and I didn't like the town. The town was a tough town to play in. It was very old, and they had some problems there in the area that we were playing at the ballpark. So when they came with the movie, they, you know, could we help them, you know, make the guys a little better players, look more professional, et cetera. So I thought about it and I said, we're going to go to Buffalo to do this. I, I didn't think that was too good an idea. My wife wanted me to go. I said, you don't realize the town's not very good. So I eventually I didn't go. Never, never did. Did some work in New York with them. And when the movie came out, they invited me to see it the production of it. And we did, we went to it and we had a good time seeing the movie. Well, she said, why didn't you want to go? You know, I said, well, I didn't like the town. Well, a couple of years later, they had a new owner, Mr. Rich, and um, he was developing the ball club. And they would talk about them going into the major leagues and professional. And, uh, you know, they invited us up to dedicate the, the ballpark and everything else going on up there. And they sent their private plane for me. They sent the people down and we had a big dinner on Saturday. We were supposed to stay the weekend. Well, my wife wanted to leave. We left early Sunday morning. We never made it to the weekend. She didn't like the town. She didn't like anything about it. I said, you didn't like three days. Imagine me spending seven weeks up here. You know, I said, I knew I would have been stuck at minimum pay, <laughs> stuck in Buffalo to finish it. Because once you took the job, you had to stay around and finish it and i would have never made it and it would have been a problem i'd rather be a bystander and watch it and it was a great movie and redford did a great job yeah that was a good movie yeah. now you also 
is something that I, I don't know if people are aware of this or not, but when Gil Hodges passed away and they replaced him with Yogi Berra, one of the options was to replace him with one of probably one of the best managers ever, and that's Whitey Herzog. Whitey was a great baseball man. He was with the organization for a long time, and he probably wanted that job, and though he wound up going to Kansas City and becoming a great manager over there, but he was a great evaluator of talent, and we probably could have won some pennant. Not to say that Yogi was not a great manager, Mm -hmm. a great guy. Personality-wise, everybody loved him. That was part of his problem. He wanted everybody to be his friend. And sometimes you got to be a little stricter. you got to have more rules. you got to set the organization for him. We were a good organization. We had built up. We won a pennant. We were closing in on the, you know something else. And we wound up winning a pennant five years later. But it didn't work out because a key mistake, you know, in the uh, sixth game of the World Series in 1973, certainly – Changed the world for the Mets because we should have won that pennant. Yeah. Well, let's, uh, before we get to 73, uh, you know, in 68, Gil, Gil Hodges comes and that changed the direction of the, of the franchise. You had him as a teammate back in 62. Now he's your manager. Tell us how your relationship was with, with Gil Hodges. Well, I think it was tough with everybody. Gil was a strict disciplinarian, very tough disciplinarian, had one set of rules, 25 players. And we all played under those rules, and he didn't make any changes. He did what he wanted to do as a manager. There wouldn't be all this analytics that you have today with managers like Gil because he wants to run the club. Sometimes he puts a lefty against a lefty, a righty, a righty. He didn't care. He had a little little feeling, and, and he went by it. And he was a great manager. He knew the game. He was preparing early in the game for things that could happen late in the game, so he had the advantage. And he was a great manager. If he wins, you know, and stays alive, we probably win 73. I know for sure because he's pitching George Stone in the sixth game in that World Series. But we could have won more pennants. He was a great manager. You know, you, you do write in the book that uh, at times where uh, Ralph Kiner was not allowed to interact with the ball club. He was a, a great hitter. And I found that very odd. And I, I reading what you re- wrote, you know, I guess you found that odd as well, that the, the organization would not let Ralph Kiner interact with the players. Well, we really didn't have a batting coach for all those years. I mean, we had one gentleman that they made the hitting coach, I guess, early on was um, the great uh, Hall of Famer, Roger Hornsby, a, a 400 hitter. And, but the only thing he would tell you is swing at a strike. I didn't need Roger Hornsby to tell me that. I was smart <laughs> enough to know that, you know, from the second grade, I guess. But anyway, we didn't have a, a hitting coach. We didn't have anybody take advantage of us. And we just struggled. And we struggled for all those years. Ralph wanted to help the guys. He was a great hitter in his day. And, you know, he wanted to work with us. And he could have helped us, but they didn't allow him on the field. The Mets are a funny organization that way. They choose their coaches, you know, in a strange fashion. And uh, we never decided on who could be a hitting coach, including Yogi. Because all Yogi would tell you is swing of the strike. You know, he wouldn't, he can't teach you. Some guys have, you know, can teach you the fundamentals and teach you the proper way of hitting. The other guys, you know, just swing and they get lucky. Yeah. You know, um, you mentioned Tom Seaver before. And, and I, we, we all know the story about his 
his antagonistic relationship with M. Donald Grant, but not you. You said M. Donald Grant was very fair with you. Well, he was fair with everybody. The last three years of our contract, he gave us three-year contracts, and we signed them before spring training. And, of course, that winter was the time of the draft, and uh, the rules changed. They changed the rules, and now all of a sudden you could play out your option. You could do some things. But meanwhile, we all had agreed to a contract. So when Seaver came to spring training, he wanted to get a new contract because he was the best pitcher in baseball, no question about it. And Grant just wanted him to go away and hide for a while because when you sign seven guys to the same three-year contract, you know, you, you create a little bit of a problem. Seven guys are going to ask for a new contract, going to play it out. They're going to take advantage of free agency. We couldn't do that. So if you couldn't do it for one guy, you can't do it for the seven. Or, you know, vice versa. If you don't do it for the seven, you're not going to do it for one. So he, he said to him, please, during the season, we'll talk. And Dick Young really got involved in that. And he, you know, wrote some stories about Seaver. And Seaver was not right in what he was trying to do. He should have been a little bit more conservative about it and tried to get him in the corner where he could talk to him on his own instead of in the spring training where all the press is around and they know what you're trying to do. And the six of us, beside Tom, we were waiting for him to come out of the office. We thought he'd come out with a big smile on his face, you know, and get a new contract. And all of us would start thinking about maybe we all should go in there. So it would have cost the Mets a lot more money. But Grant was a good man. If he would have told Tom, and I don't know what they had in the meeting and what they said, you know, wait a couple of months or do something this he'd make good. He would make good because he protected me a couple of times and made did good with his contracts. And I always got the money that he promised me. You know, it's you mentioned before, uh, it made me think about this, you, Roger Hornsby. And unbelievable, you your career, when you think about your career, I don't know who has the record for playing with and against the most Hall of Famers or being with, you know, but I mean, you you played with Tom Seaver. You played with Willie Mays. You played against Hank Aaron. You played against Sandy Koufax. I mean, it goes on and on and on. It, it oh, is yeah. amazing how many uh, uh, great players you played with and against. There were so many great players in the National League. Remember? You had fewer teams, less players, and it, it, the, every team was stacked. I mean, bad teams, you know, had great players. Pittsburgh Pirates, they had great players. Roberto Clemente and Stargell and Al Oliver. They had tremendous guys on every ball club in the National League. The bad teams were good. What was happening was the older teams, or the, the, the new teams that just came in, acquired all the older players so they came we had a lot of hall of famers on the mets but when you're at the twilight of your career you can't perform up to the same you know expectations of when you're younger and they struggled we'd get tired things like that so all the, our club struggled but we had some great players yeah you know uh, and i want to ask you about your life after baseball but i did want to point out to gary kashik that looking at your record on uh, baseball reference you struck out less than 10% of your plate appearances. That is unheard of today. Gary, you have a comment on that? <laughs> well, strikeouts back then were down considerably as they are today. 
I didn't realize the percentage was that low, which is uh, commendable. Yeah, and worth me looking into uh, others from that era just to see what those percentages are. So, you know, any if it comes to Ed Cranepool and hitting, I'm I'm not surprised really to hear it, but yet I am because that's an incredibly small percentage when you think about strikeouts, right? Ed, what do you think? Uh, less than 10% of, of your plate appearances. That's amazing. Well, I knew I didn't strike out a lot because I put the ball on the play, you know, ball in play. And Casey used to like to make us do that with two strikes and say, butcher boy, chop down on it, do whatever you can, keep it in play. You got a chance of hitting. Nowadays, of course, they're swinging straight up. You're trying to hit the ball in the air and put some loft on it and get some fly balls. Because the more fly balls you hit, the better chance you got of hitting a couple of home runs. But you're going to be striking out a lot, too. And these guys do it. But you know what? They're getting paid to hit home runs today. So they're swinging for home runs. And that's why guys are striking out 150, sometimes 200 times a year, yeah. which is unbelievable. You know, we just... You know, you can get a man home from third base by hitting a little grounder or a fly ball. You don't always have to hit a home run. Exactly. And, and, and Ed, you cared about batting average, which, you know, I, I guess I'm old school as far as that goes because I still look and see, you know, who's hitting 300. And that was the year that you you hit 300. That meant a lot to you. Well, that's that was that was really something you took pride in hitting 300. You know, you got on base, you did some things. I mean, you, you try to do that and, you know, you got to get some base hits where the guy that would be a star today in today's ball game would be Dave Kingman from our ball club. Dave swung straight up, came from San Francisco, had the most power I've ever seen of a right-handed hitter. I never saw a guy hit the ball so far. He's got records how far he hits him. He'd be a star today. He was before his time. He wound up with 430 home runs, but he quit or, or retired when he hit 35 home runs. For Chicago, he couldn't get a job the next year. Yeah. Today, everybody would be calling on his number and saying, come work for us. Yeah. You, know, you could hit 35 or 40 home runs for us, and you'd be a star. Yep. Yeah. So uh, you retired from baseball after 1979, and you tried to buy the Mets. They were for sale, yeah. and you put up a group, uh, and you tried to buy the Mets, and unfortunately went to the Wilpons. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. you know, uh, sure yeah, yeah. Uh, what was your group like, and how would you have run the Mets differently? Well, I had a group that uh, we had, we owned two minor league clubs at the time, my little group, and uh, we were considering buying the Mets, and I was approached by Bob Applenap. He happens to be a gentleman that owned Precision Val, and he happened to be uh, Richard Nixon's close buddy he had they used to go boating and fishing together he owns walker k down in the bahamas and he approached me and said look your group is is young inexperienced and doesn't have enough money this was a billionaire that wanted to buy the ball club not myself i no longer was going to be one of the principal owners to, you know putting all the money in or as much as i could he wanted to do it and you know, me work for him and you know when i figured it out he was probably correct and you know, he went in this club, clubhouse up in uh, Westchester, the Westchester Country Club, and made an announcement one afternoon that we were going to buy the ball club. Because all he asked me to do was introduce him to Lorinda D. Relay, and that was easy enough for me to do. Mm -hmm. And I certainly could have uh, approached that situation. Mr. Payson was alive, and he, he knew who I was and liked me. And we could have had that meeting, and we did. We had the meeting. We were the first one to meet in early September. 
and nothing came of it. She uh, wanted to think about it, and she kept stalling and didn't want to make a decision. Well, I knew what she was doing. She was negotiating with her own people, and they were trying to put a group together, and they did. They had uh, Doubleday, um, and, uh, you know, Mr. Wilpont was there, and another gentleman was with him. I forget who the second one. Um, but anyway, they put it together. I started negotiating in, in December. By this time, Bob Applenap had heard enough, seen enough. I had set him up with the meeting. He put a, a check down to Mrs. Dearley, and she didn't want to do anything with it. So it never came about. But it, it was probably the, the most disappointing thing for me because I went from the penthouse to the outhouse. And mm. that was my last year. I never reported to spring train and never wanted to go. I thought we would buy in the ball club, really. And uh, I would have been working for them. I wanted to go in the front office. I didn't want to be a manager. I wanted to be, uh, you know, in the general manager's positioning so I can negotiate without the players in front of me and do what I had to do in the best interest of the ball club. So, uh, you know, a lot of Mets fans are definitely sorry that that didn't work out. Uh, I know we're, we're, we're very uh, we're very cognizant of your time. I do want to ask you how you are you feeling because you did recently had a, a kidney transplant, and you want to talk about how that all came about because I know it was it was a, a complicated procedure. Well, it was a tough procedure. The toughest part about it is getting somebody willing to donate a kidney for you. You know, you're not going on a shelf and purchasing one off the shelf. You know, this is an organ that somebody's giving up, and especially if you're looking for a live donor. Uh, it makes it very difficult. Somebody's given an organ up out of their body, but it took me two and a half years. And uh, the Dr. Darius out in the Stony Brook, he kept uh, urging me to hang in there. We'll get one for you. We'll get one for you. Two and a half years later, I wound up uh, getting a donor, a gentleman that uh, was a police officer at uh, the Guardia Airport, you know, offered to do it. And as it turned out, we didn't take his his kidney, who was a match with myself. Uh, there was a fireman in the there looking for a kidney. His wife had wanted to donate. Didn't work out for them. They couldn't have it. So he was in worse shape than I was. I was pretty close to going on dialysis. And um, he was on it for three and a half years. So the doctor, Dr. Darris, he talked to me about giving up my donor, switching it. I said, well, who am I going to take? He says, well, his wife is a perfect match for you. So I said, what do you mean? My guy will go to him and his wife will come to me. And, and, and we did wound up doing it like that. We wound up with four people in the operating room and everything went well. The four of us went in together. Four of us came out together. We all celebrated. We all were healthy today. And it, it, it was a great situation. But that was the first miracle. My second one was that a miracle at home myself my wife came down with pancreatic cancer mm. Mm. and uh, you know that situation there if you look at the odds on that that's not too good so between myself and my wife she winds up beating it uh, by a doctor in florida who by by the way uh, david dines was very instrumental in it who was a club doctor at the time and so was uh, Mr. Wupon, he um, made a couple of phone calls to me. He knew the people and he got the appointment for us. So, you know, you'll you'll be forever grateful for a lot of people that were in your corner. So I said, it's about time to talk about some of this stuff since Ralph had retired and he just passed along, Ralph Kiner. I was the only one that could tell a lot of my stories and pass it along. And 
I said, that's a great name. And Gary came up with it in the group and uh, it turned out well. No, well, God bless you and, and your wife. That, that's terrific that you're both doing, doing well. You know, Ed, Ed we're going to let you go. We thank you very much. I just want you to know that Met fans of all ages know of Ed Cranepool, and you you know, you know that you are a beloved New York Met. Well, thank you. It's been a great career and a great run, so I'm just looking forward to a good ending. We always love when you come back to City Field uh, for whatever celebration it is, so the fans just love to see you. So, Ed, Ed, thank you very much for joining us on Baseball and BBQ. Yeah, Ed, thank, you thank you for coming back on here. We appreciate it. You're, you're a pleasure to have on, and we we appreciate you very much. Thank you very much. Have a good night. So Ed Carrington had to leave, but we still have the author, the co-author of The Last Miracle, My 18-Year Journey with the Amazing New York Mets. We have Gary Kashuk. Gary, you know, Ed Cranepool talks a lot about other people in the book, and one of them was the sign man, who was very famously uh, <laughs> in, in the stand at the city, at City Field, at, at Chase Stadium. Ed was not too familiar, was not too happy with the Simon, was he? No, and that surprised me uh, because I asked Cleon the same question when I wrote his book. Oh, he loved him, and we look forward to watching <laughs> him from the outfield. And you know, Ed Ed goes into this little thing that, that hey, how would you like somebody to walk in your office and say that's a terrible report? And it, it, it just <laughs> hilarious, and yet I wasn't expecting it. So that that that's Ed. He's just full of surprises. Just when you think he's going to like this guy, no, he took. Uh, took baseball very seriously and losing very seriously. He didn't want to be part of losing. He didn't want to be part of a bad sign. Sign man in particular with Ed Cranepool was really rough on him. So, uh, yeah, big surprise, though, that uh, that, would be, that was the his take on the sign man, <laughs> big time. And it is amazing, to, I, as I mentioned to Ed, that he, he basically, you know, was still a child when he – you know, played major league baseball. I, that just amazes me. You know, somebody like that, you would, you would say, Oh, you know, he's still developing. And I mean, he wasn't even fully developed and he is playing in the major leagues. I, that's that's really a a fourth miracle. I mean, the other ones were miracles really, but you know, he had so many expectations went through the growing pains and the, disappointments and the all-star game he finally makes and then the demotions and the empty promises by the managers and there's always somebody new at first base uh, really good players that they bring in and he survived all that and the book also goes through a lot of the trades that they made and that ed creampool wasn't one of those it's well. a miracle <laughs> still there at the end yeah 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 because you you keep thinking he kept thinking he's gone he kept thinking, right? And and actually, he saved. He may have actually been responsible for Tug McGraw remaining with the Mets. That yes. was a very interesting story. Well, you know, Ed, Ed has a he has a way about him in the way he speaks, and you know, he kind of commands the room. And uh, he could sense that he had to intervene at that moment, or Tug was going to be gone. Uh, and that could have been a very different uh, thing. You know, they. You, you got to believe it didn't really kick in immediately either. They did not start winning as soon as that happened. It kicked in later, but right. It could have been Tug McGraw been on another team and they wouldn't have made that uh, 73 to the playoffs at all. It would have been just another year. Yeah. Yeah. He also talks about some of the, his teammates, uh, Joe Foy, who, uh, you know, un- unfortunately it just, you know, he was on some 
illegal pharmaceuticals, I guess. Yeah, and and he points out that Gil was Gil really knew what was going on. He was protecting Joe Ford. He protected his players. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, yet they ran him out there on those. Uh, I think it was Sundays, and um, you know he 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 was his own demise. They they all knew it, and um, you know Foy was another great. He could have been a great player. I know he played for the '67 Red Sox World Series team, '69 Mets. So he he was in there for these good teams in the World Series, and just you know controlled substances can get the best of you, and it ends your career. Yeah, yeah, Gary. Who I want to say Mets, but if you had to choose another Met, who would you interview? Interview or do a book on a, a book on? Sorry, yeah, it's a long interview, I guess. <laughs> well, um, I like the era that uh, Cleon and uh, probably Jerry Grody. I like to. It, I, I would love to talk to Jerry Grody. He's a. I, I, from all accounts, he's very stubborn mm-hmm. and uh, doesn't really have much to say to people anymore. But I think that would be a really good story from you know get the perspective of the catcher. You know, on all those teams, and I don't think it's been done with Grody. So uh, he was on my radar. Dave Kingman, absolutely, but he probably mm-hmm. has had a book. But from that era of Mets, even the second, the second guys, uh, Wayne Garrett and Boswell, and those guys, it, I think they would all have a, a good story to tell from their own point of view. Um, but Grody would be my number one. Yeah, you mentioned Kingman. I think Kingman might be. I, I think he's doing like a tennis academy or something in vegas or i'll I'll tell you a kingman story involved thurman munson munson who was pitching uh gidry was pitching and kingman hit a home run that probably still in the air now right (laughs) and uh next time up uh munson puts down the signal for the pitch in the same spot with the same pitch and gidry calls him to the mound says what are you doing thurman said I want to see how far I can hit this one. <laughs> you hear these, hear these things from from people that you know you, you don't know for, until you talk to guys like you, and it, it comes out. But yeah, Kingman would be a special guy. But I think Grody, I think the Mets fans would really like to, you know, they they would get his perspective. Although, you know, Ed and Cleon were so open. You know, you need that when you're when you're talking to people. You, you need that. I was um, interviewing a hockey player years ago for a book and would have been a phenomenal book, but he just had nothing to tell me, nothing. You know, how, oh, tell me about your first goal. I don't remember it. You know, that type of thing. So you, you, you need to just ask a question and let them go with it, which is Ed Cranepool and Cleon Jones. And who knows if Jerry Grody's like that. I'd, I'd like mm-hmm. to try to find out. Right. Gary, uh, you know, we, we mentioned that uh, Ed Crample was in the 1965 All-Star game, although he did not play. He Was was he uh, bitter about that? <laughs> you know that he was. So. <laughs> <laughs> but, but it, Gene Walk was the manager, and Ed was so upset that he didn't play. They didn't even get to go on a defense. And Johnny Callison didn't play either, and he was one of Gene Walk's players. Callison hit the winning home run in the 64 World Series at Shea Stadium. And Ed had a chance later on in his career. Mock called him when he was the manager for the, for the Twins and said, come on and over to the American League and be my DH. And Ed said to himself, you didn't play me in the All-Star game. I'm never going to play for you. So he just held, he held that inside. So, yeah, he, he remembered what Gene Mock didn't do, and it affected him. Yes. But, but those were the days when the starting players actually played 
most of the game. That's true. Uh, and and on that team was Willie Mays, Hank Aaron, Dick Allen, Ernie Banks, yeah. Pete Rose, Will, uh, wow. Joe Torrey, <laughs> and Maury, Maury Wills was like the starting lineup. So if you look, if you look at the American League roster, like seventy percent of those guys are in the Hall of Fame. That those were Hall of Fame era. There was yeah. like he said earlier, the, he only had so many teams and so many good players to go around, but every team had them. And uh, that those All Star games, that's why they were so special. Incredible. Right. Then you get a guy like Frank Robinson who goes from Cincinnati to Baltimore, and now he's playing for the American League. It, it kind of made it fun to see that every now and then it would happen, but not like it does today, where guys keep moving around. Yeah. Gary, does your phone ring off the hook now with uh, guys saying, "Hey, do a book on me"? Uh, I wish that were true. Uh, it it does not happen that way. I had a chance to do a book with Bucky Dent. That did not work out, and that would have been fun because he was a nice, easy person to talk with. But no, my phone has not uh, rung, out, rung off the hook like it, like you ex- it would may have expected to. But uh, I'm going to keep plugging, looking. Um, you know, like I said earlier, if you guys know of anybody you think should have a book, let me know, and I'll look into it. Yeah, I think Jeff should have a book, but that's another story. <laughs> uh, everybody thinks they should have a book, and that's true. They should. <laughs> I don't think I should. I think Jeff should. He's very oh, interesting. <laughs> oh, he yeah. Has a, exactly he has a lot of right. skeletons in the closet. You, you um, might, it might make a good book. I'm just, <laughs> I'm just kidding. But no, but it, the, the book is excellent. And uh, I mean, let, let's just tell everybody again, it's called The Last Miracle, my 18 year journey with the amazing New York Mets. Yeah. And I, and I love what he called uh, when he talked about Joe Torre. Yeah, he didn't hold it hold back on Tori no. or, or Yogi, nope, uh, and, or, or several others. And you know, and some this might rub people the wrong way when they when they read about this. And I don't I don't quite understand that. This is Ed's truth. He's opened up and told it in his way. They, uh, he could have easily not done that, and um, you know, it would have been just another book with people not given a hundred percent of the truth. I think it's refreshing that he's done what he's what he's done here. Along the way, he took some shots, but if you read the reasons why he did this, probably well deserved in, in, in every case. Well, yeah. Gary, we we thank you for joining us. We thank Ed for joining us. Get the book; it is a, just a terrific read for any, not just a Mets fan, for any baseball fan. Baseball, and, yeah, and it's really a terrific book. I mean, he's the guy who played in the '60s at 17 through. Uh, through 1979 and played with some the, the best teams that you want to uh, speak about. So, Gary, thank you for joining us on Baseball and BBQ. Thank you both. We'll stay in touch. I appreciate your time here. I really do. Thank, thank you. you, Gary. Okay, guys. Have a good night. Hi, this is Gary Mack of the Mets Musings Podcast. And if you like barbecue and you like baseball, then you have to listen to Baseball and BBQ with Jeff and Lynn. They always have the best guests from the world of baseball and the world of barbecue, all in one little package. So check it out. Baseball and BBQ with Len and Jeff. Okay, guys, take it away. And we'd like to thank Ed Cranepool and Gary Kashek for that interview. We really enjoyed that. I mean, Ed Cranepool, I mean... You know, you talk about Mets. It's 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 a crane pool is one of, like I said, one of the beloved New York Mets. Eighteen years with the team. There that's that's absolutely incredible. 
And he has some great stories. I love being the, the baseball and barbecue show. We we certainly know about aged meat and the, the fact that Ron Swoboda threw out all those steaks because he thought they smelled bad or they were going bad, you know, mm-hmm. is just was was funny. And Jeff. Yes. I know that we've got a new feature. Yeah. Well, yes. It's, what's it called? Jeff's two cents. <laughs> yes. So it's not a rant. It's not a rant. I just need to just tell you that. So last week, Ronald Acuna Jr. did something that no major league has done before. 30 home runs and 60 stolen bases. Now, Ronald Acuna Jr. is a fantastic player. In fact, Ahmed has his younger brother in the minor leagues. And if he's half the player that Ronald is, the Mets got a terrific player. However, social media has been celebrating this accomplishment. And why not? It's never been done before. But let's put this into a little context. Here we go. (laughs) With rule changes, bases being bigger, which means the distance between the bases has been decreased, making it much easier to steal a base. Pitchers have limited pickoff attempts, so the base runner has that advantage as well. And the pitch clock is also helping the base runner because he knows the pitcher cannot hold the ball very long. So now let's slow the roll on these great accomplishments. I, I know there will be no asterisks, but the intelligent baseball fan should know that the stolen bases are due to rule changes and the dimension changes. That's my two cents. That is Jeff's two cents. We should like take two pennies and clink them together. But <laughs> you are you are right. The 30 home runs, can't take that away from him. But the 60 bases, couldn't agree more. Because stolen bases, you're going to see a lot of stolen bases this season, right? We have. Yeah, yeah. One thing that you have to see this season is you must go to BaseballBBQ.com. Please go there. You know what? It's it's hot this week. I don't know where you guys are and what part of the country, but in New York, it's in the high 90s this week. And you certainly don't want to have the oven lit up. So everybody should be outside barbecuing. And if you're using those old tools, stop. Go to baseballbbq.com. Grilling tools and accessories, baseball bat handles, home plate shaped cutting boards, tons of stuff. Do it. You'll enjoy it. You're going to love the product. And Jeff, now we have a special that we we actually missed last week. And I had a couple of listeners say, what happened to, well, you know what I'm going to say. Let's give it to them now because we cheated them last week. Let's not do it again. It's time for the baseball quote of the week. Lumps are like a soft bed. They're easy to get into and hard to get out of. That was Hall of Famer Johnny Bench. (laughs) Wow. That's a good one. I love that. I I never heard that one before. So that's a good one. Yeah, that's a good one. Jeff, every good chef knows. Chef, every anyone. You you have to have something to cut when you cook. You need knives and you need good ones. And Noah Rosen is the founder of Forge to Table. And he's going to talk about knives. And you never knew how interesting 
knives could be and his journey. So sit back, relax, enjoy Noah Rosen of the Forge to Table. Baseball and barbecue listeners, in our continuing effort to bring you the best products from the world of baseball and the world of barbecue, products that you are going to need, you're going to love, and you're going to use. We are very happy to bring you a knife maker. Knives are essential for anyone that's tried to do a cooking job with a dull knife or a bad knife or a cheap knife. You know what I'm talking about. I'm just going to read this right from their website, and then I'll tell you who we have. The company is called Forge to Table. We have a Noah Rosen. Noah is a lifelong foodie who dreamt of being a chef since the age of two, created Forge to Table while a freshman at Johnson & Wales. We know somebody else who went to Johnson & Wales. We'll get to that in a moment. Seeking a custom chef knife and quickly finding a need among his peers. When he's not talking with customers, cooking or packing orders, you could find him cheering his team on at a soccer game. We are so glad to have with us Noah Rosen of Forge to Table. Noah, welcome to Baseball and Barbecue. Thank you so much for having me. Excited to be here with you guys. So before we get started with the the unimportant stuff, we got to address the really important stuff. And that's the fact that you are a Johnson & Wales graduate. And Jeff, why don't you tell Noah who else went to Johnson & Wales? Yeah, my, my son went to Johnson & Wales. Yeah. <laughs> Class of, I think, 2017. He's out six years now. So he's a uh, 20. He, he majored in hospitality, not the culinary. Okay. But, he, uh, but I spent many trips going up to Johnson Wales in Providence. So I uh, like to drive up there. It's a great town. I really fell in love with it. I'm a West Coast boy. So going to the exact opposite side of the country for school for a really good program. Great foodie city. It's a great time. I might have <laughs> known your son. I mean, I was a class of 2019. Yeah, class of 2019. So we would have been there at the same time. Maybe. And uh, oh, wow. I also see uh, Maya Alderman, who's also on uh, works for, for Forge yep. the Table, went there as well. And so did Sam Burgess. He's the oh. one cranking out most of our awesome recipes from our test kitchen. He was my roommate in college, and he was class of 2017, I believe. Oh, so, okay. Yeah, small yeah. world. It is. Yeah, and it's not... How big a school is it? Oh, gosh. I mean... I think we're at 12,000 or something like that. It's a pretty oh, okay. sizable school. So, all right. So then, I mean, it's all yeah. about the culinary program, culinary, hospitality, food and beverage entrepreneurship, which was mine, but it's a pretty great program. Yeah, there's two, two campuses in, in Providence, the yep. culinary section, which is, I guess, it's not in, in town where the hospitality is, is in the city of Providence. Yeah, we're just, just down outside of Providence, a little further right. south, right on the water next to the old Coast Guard College. All right, so now that we did the ad for Johnson & Wales, <laughs> let's talk about Forge to Table, and let's talk about you, Noah. How did you become, so you went, you didn't go to school to be in the knife, to get into the knife business, but you are, so take us on your journey. Yeah, well, I don't know, well, I mean, I'm sure there's people that intend to go into the knife business when they start out in their careers, but it certainly wasn't on my radar in the slightest. I've been working as a chef since I was 12 or 13. I started washing dishes for some caterers here in California and worked my way up. Just to tie in some baseball here, I just learned. Uh, apparently, the Yankees are staying while they're out here in Orange County. They're staying at the hotel that I worked at when I was in high school. 
So who knew? <laughs> but I started working in restaurants when I was younger. I always knew I wanted to be a chef. Went off to Johnson & Wales, got a bit of a knife fetish, if you will. I don't know anybody that loves spending time in a kitchen that doesn't fall in love with really fun, sharp objects. And uh, one thing led to the other. I connected with a really incredible blacksmith and his wife who does all their marketing and all the you know mojo to make things happen. And we formed this great partnership that I did not expect to be a thing. It all started out of my dorm. And now we're here. So it's been an incredible, we're going to be six years old in October. So that's oh, an incredible story, story starting out in your dorm, making a business. <laughs> that's amazing. Well, it's great to go to a college where no one's going to look twice if you're walking around with a backpack full of knives, uh-huh. just hopping on the bus, <laughs> going to class. It's like, I got 20 knives in here and nobody bats an eye. So I don't think you could do that at uh, Stanford, but at no, Johnson yeah. Wales, no one even, you know, wouldn't even give me a second glance. No, well, let's talk about knives for a second. Well, we're going to talk about knives a lot, but I'm always wondering when you go to college, right? I did not go to culinary school and I knew, you know, I need my if if the if I was an engineer, I had to get my special calculator. The you know, the engineers at my school got the IT or whatever those were, the Texas instruments, the ones that did all the crazy math and the photography majors had their nice cameras and we just had our notebooks and our textbooks and all when you go to culinary school do they specifically tell you you have to bring a certain set of knives or do you have to buy them when you're there i mean how's that work when when you when you're a culinary student with your supplies totally so they do it when you start off and this is something that i got some pushback on but when you start off going to culinary school you're going to get your textbooks. You're going to get, you know, this list of required things that you need for calculus and for history and for intro to culinary. And on that list is going to be some chef coats, some aprons, some hats, specialty shoes, and your knife kit. And they're going to tell you exactly what to buy. There's very little wiggle room when you're a brand new freshman coming in, at least to Johnson Wales. I believe it's the same at Culinary Institute of America. They tell you what you need because they want you showing up with exactly the right stuff, no ifs, ands, or buts. And a lot of the kids going to culinary school surprisingly, have never worked in the industry. So you get a lot of green people in there that this is their first time going into a professional kitchen. So they line it out for you. They give you, they have contracts with big old companies like Mercer, and they hand you a bag of knives. And then over the course of weeks or months or years, you start adding your own stuff into that knife kit, and you start adding your own little goodies, and you start throwing out the uh, not-so-great things they start you off with and putting in better you know, a great thermometer instead of the little one. And you start upgrading little peelers and then knives and then adding a mandolin and things like that as you go through classes and you realize the tools that you really want to have your own of. I got some pushback because I think it took me all of 72 hours of being in culinary school to grab my really great knife that I got when I was working here in California and put it in my knife kit and take it to class. And they said, hey, you're a freshman. You got to use what we tell you to use. (laughs) I was like, ah, you sure about that? (laughs) Does the freshman kit come with a box of (laughs) Band-Aids? Oh, man. Oh, man. That they do. I credit where credit's due. They start you pretty quick with knife safety, but they couldn't start you quick enough. I still talk to some of my chefs and my professors uh, from the culinary school and the stories of what happens, you know. There's a lot of uh, adrenaline when you're a freshman in college, and then you give them a bag of knives and then make them go to class at five in the morning. Things happen. 
So very busy, uh, very busy nurses at Johnson Wales. <laughs> so tell us, how did you come up with Forge the Table? Give us the origin story of how you came up with this idea and meeting your partners and, and making these knives. Because I got to tell you, they are incredible, incredible tools for the kitchen. Well, I'm really glad you guys have had a chance to play with them yourselves. So the way I connected with them was just fortuitous, random, right place, right time kind of situation. And I think that's how a lot of small businesses start personally. I actually tagged along with my dad. I was a freshman in college at the time. And I tagged along with my dad to go to Chicago because he was going out there for business. And Chicago is an incredible foodie town. There's so many fantastic restaurants. So I said, well, I'm on the East Coast. I'll meet you in the middle. So I flew out to Chicago and met my dad there. Went to some great restaurants, cruised around. And he was in town for the housewares show which is one of the largest conventions in the United States. He does a lot of pet products and stuff like that. So I tag along with him. We walk to the show, get lots of fun free samples of weird little things. And then we head into the uh, underground area. So there's four halls. Most people consider three halls at McCormick Center in Chicago. You've got the main exhibitors and then all over across the way and underground, you have your first time and foreign exhibitors. And we pop down there just to see what was going on. We're cruising around. It's day three or four of the show. And we come across a folding plastic table, like you would find, you know, at a tailgate and racking like you would find from a little local hardware store and sitting up there on these shelves, no glass cases, nothing fancy are just stunning knives. And I stood there just in awe of it and struck up a conversation with Carol. And Carol is Alex, my blacksmith. That is his wife. And they've been together for many, many years. Alex is a third generation blacksmith. He really wanted to sort of change the game for his family. They were doing very basic stuff, very small operation, essentially no exports. And then he came up and was like, oh, cool. Okay, so we're going to do better. This is not going to be the same thing. I'm not going to work like this. He went and got his degree in industrial design and product design. And then he lived in Japan for five or six years living in Siki uh, and studying with some of the greatest knife makers. And then he came back and they started just making really cool knives. And right around this time is when Carol tagged along with a friend who was exhibiting for a different company and got a little booth in the trade show that she could have never afforded by herself and just showed up for a couple of days. And we talked for hours and I sold myself like something I wasn't, to be honest, just to try to get some free samples of some of the beautiful knives I was looking at. <laughs> and then one thing led to the other and they asked if I wanted something custom. And my little chefy brain, the light bulb went off. So we sat there, we sketched it out. And she went back to the Forge in China. And I went back to Johnson & Wales. And we're emailing and we're WhatsApping. And we're working on this little custom design. She's sending me samples. They're just whacking them out there. And finally, we get the knife that I just loved, which is now our 8-inch Guto. And it showed up. And I took it to class. And the rest is history. My friends just saw it and said, wow, what a cool knife. Where where'd you get that? What brand is that? I was like, well, it's mine. I'm like, yeah, we know, but where'd you get it? I'm like, well, no, it's it's mine. <laughs> and right then and there, actually, I kind of regret it. I sold that knife to one of my classmates. So like Gin 1, the original is long since gone. But right then I made the decision to take on some student, some more student loans and get some money over to the forge. We're going to buy some steel. We're going to make 200 of these. And about nine months later, they showed up. And I had no idea what to do. We didn't have a name at that point. I was just a kid with a knife that I wanted to sell to my friends. And I started on a little Etsy store 
and working out of my dorm and my dad helped me set it all up too because he's worked in you know sales and stuff like that a lot of my professors gave me advice and we just started like that with nothing yeah an american success story american and japanese (laughs) success story yeah i love the way that it's a global situation for sure i love the way the what do you call the gyoto Gyoto, yeah the the way it feels in your hand is just beautiful just nice to just hold and, and and use it's just terrific it's very different than what a lot of american cooks are used to because we're used to the big old european knives that are so heavy but that's what a cleaver is for in my opinion and you want something more comfortable a lot of chefs even younger than me get arthritis very early on i was diagnosed uh, i had ar- arthritis coming in when i was 19 years old and that's something that you get a benefit of by using a lighter knife that has less mechanical um, strain on your hands and it's just a more comfortable situation. It's a very different kind of knife. Not everybody loves them, but I'm a big fan of the Asian style knives and Forge to Table strives to be a good introduction for people. No, the the knives, let, let's get into knife basics because I've always wondered, and I'm guilty of this, you know, before before I, I tried your knives, I had a butcher block in it, you know, in my kitchen with some different knives in there. If one was dirty in the in the sink. I took a different one and my wife would say, you can't use that to do that job. You need that knife. And I'm like, what's what's the difference? But there is a difference. Different knives make different jobs easier. How do you figure, though, which knife you need? It's almost like in golf with the golf clubs. You know, you you know, you this iron is for this distance and this is this. How do you know? You know, whether you need the eight inch uh, or the, the boning knife or the six inch or which which knife is for what job. So I'll let you in on a bit of a secret. I don't know if it's that much of a secret realistically, but most professional chefs have nowhere near as many knives as home cooks do. Because at the end of the day, if you keep all of your knives sharp, you don't need a serrated knife to cut a tomato. That's what your chef knife is for. You don't need a boning knife to fillet a fish. You can use your utility knife for that. What's happened over time is people like to add their collection because no doubt you get a specialized knife. It is going to make that task easier. Do you need 14 different knives to cook dinner for a family of four on a weeknight or even on a weekend? (laughs) Absolutely not. You're going to find that the Guto will be your go-to knife. You're going to have a chef knife. You keep it sharp. It's going to have, you know, 95% of your tasks covered. In some cases, though, there's great little niches you can find and latch onto. One of my favorites is our Nakiri knife, which is squared off. It looks like a little baby cleaver, and it's meant for vegetables. It doesn't have a tip on it. It's sort of just for downward chopping and going into onions and zucchinis and things like that. Can you use a chef knife? 100%. Are you going to have a great time with the chef knife, too? Totally. But the Nakiri just sort of helps with the vertical force, the comfort, the way it works on your board. I think most people that are starting off really just need a chef knife, maybe a paring knife or a utility knife, and then a serrated knife for bread. Beyond that, you can start growing your collection over time, and you're going to find knives that you love and need for the way that you cook and knives that you'll never pick up again. So it's nice to build over time and keep coming back, not buying everything at once. And how should a knife feel in your hand? So a good knife should feel like an extension of your hand. You want to have a comfortable grip and you need to make sure you're using the right grip because it will vary from certain knives. In the case of a Japanese knife, you want to pinch your thumb and forefinger, your thumb and index finger against um, against the blade right against the ferrule. 
So you're gonna have a pinch grip is what it's called. And that's gonna help keep your wrist straight and comfortable and it's gonna give you the best balance because you wanna find the balance of the knife so you have the most control possible. When you're holding it correctly, it should feel light and agile, like a ninja's blade you know, or a samurai and comfortable. Mm -hmm. You're not trying to fight through the food. You're not trying to hack through, especially with Japanese style knives. You wanna pull through and use the edge of the blade to get through it, not the weight. And I think that's a big factor in comfort as well. And your knives, when you first open it, they come in the box. That is beautiful. I don't know who thought of that. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I would imagine it was you, but they, they, you guys got baseball and barbecue listeners. I'm telling you, no joke. You will love just what when you open the box. It, it's it's got little latches on it. It's just so nice. You know that you're opening something special. It's it's just great. Thank you. It's it was actually Alex's and Carol's idea. They've okay. been doing it. They've been starting to play with that idea before. It was actually one of their presentations. A lot of the knives that you buy will come in those little magnetic closure plastic boxes, and obviously we wanted something to hold the knives. But we thought going natural. We're using natural wood in the handles and oxhorn in the ferrules. We should keep with that process and not slap it in a plastic or paper box, which perfectly fine. But we liked the wood. So we went with the toasted pine. We did the toasting finish, uh, which is very traditional in Japanese culture as well. And then they're all hand signed by Alex. He has these seals that he just hand signs and puts their stamp on um, every time they check them out of the forge. So I think the presentation is a big part, especially if you're gifting. I know some people say it's bad luck to gift a knife. But I think uh, the presentation is, as a chef, as a diner, you eat with your eyes. That's something they teach you at Johnson Wales in culinary school everywhere, is your perception. Starts off how you feel about a meal, about a cocktail, about anything, about a presentation of someone else. Boxing the knives in that way starts off on a great foot, I think. And it makes them a keepsake in a family, which is what a good knife should be. So somebody gave me a knife and my wife said to me, you know, did you, did you give him a, just some change you're supposed to give? Mm -hmm. I said, no, why would I do that? She said, because it's, you're supposed to do that. The superstition is that it's severing the friendship, I think is, is what the superstition is. And if somebody gives you a knife, but for some reason you're supposed to give them some change. I don't know exactly, but what, what is the superstition now that you mentioned it? So I've heard two fronts of the superstition. One is if someone gives you a knife, it is severing the friendship. The other that I've heard is if someone gives you a knife, you're going to cut yourself. And it's similar. My grandmother used to always have these sayings, uh, never buy someone a plane ticket or a bus ticket or they'll leave you. So she would never, you know, pay for anybody else's <laughs> vacation and things like that. When my grandparents traveled, they would each get their own little tickets together. But those little superstitions have carried on. Um, I've had people that when they give it, they tape a penny to it to give the penny back to them. So they'll actually give you the penny. And I've seen all sorts of things. I think it's, and it's pretty funny. I can't say that that's the case. I've given knives to a lot of my friends and everything is still held together just fine. Okay. I was going to say the, the box that you, that's gifted. I mean, it, it makes a great gift. I never heard of those superstitions, but I think <laughs> and when I, when I received it, I go, wow, this would make a great gift. Especially to an engaged or, or, or a couple getting married, this would be uh, you know just a perfect gift for them to start their lives off in in the kitchen. Thank you. 
Yeah, and uh, we've just added, not just added, it's been almost a year, but we've just set up an engraving machine now. So now we can personalize on top of that. And we're sort of striving for being that really good gift choice that's still affordable. It's not committing to, like I said, a 14-piece set of knives, but it's a great gift for culinary school graduates and wedding presents and engagement presents. I've had a lot of fun working for um, groomsmen. And they do like a whole thing, like a set of knives, like each uh, groomsman gets a knife from the groom and it's totally cute. And we put something fun on, on there for them. So it's been really fun to work with people's special moments, too. That's not something I expected to happen. I'd be remiss without mentioning the website, which is forge2table.com. And it's a great website. You know, it has a shop, has a gallery, tells all about the company and also has a tab for recipes. And when I was looking at that, as I'm looking at it now. And it's just not the cuisine. You have like a, a dozen cuisines there. Uh, <laughs> Japanese, Chinese, American, European, Korean, Israeli, it, it's, uh, Indian, Spanish. This is uh, terrific. Who's making all these recipes? It started with me. And I realized that I'm a great cook, but not a great photographer. Like you guys were talking on last week with your Australian guests, that food photography <laughs> is seriously something. Yeah. Uh, food photography is a skill. Uh, one that I lack, but... Like I mentioned, Sam Burgess is our test chef, as I call him. He was my roommate in college for a couple of years, and I roped him into this whole forge to table endeavor. He is an incredible chef and a nutritionist, actually. And we've sort of grown our network of chefs, and now we've got about a dozen different chefs that will pop in and out and do different recipes for us. But we've found, especially during COVID, that it was a great way to connect with customers without having to sell them something. Because... We are a knife store on the surface. You would not come back to us until you need another knife or if something goes wrong. But we want to stay connected with our customers by putting out some really kick-ass recipes. And we want people to sort of identify with that and come back and find great things. So we put out new stuff every two weeks. They'll vary seasonally, sometimes trendy stuff, sometimes things from uh, our team's past, from you know the, their upbringing. But we've had some really, really fun recipes. I will tell you that Len's wife is a really good cook, and she is also gluten-free. And there is a tab for gluten-free recipes. And I'm hoping that she would make me the kimchi bacon fried rice, because that looks <laughs> really delicious. You know she will. <laughs> Noah, I'm almost like afraid to point this out, because I have a feeling you, you're going to say, no, that's got to be a mistake. I'm going to tell our listeners, you better run to this website, because I'm looking at your shears which in addition to knives, kitchen shears are part of, are really important. Your kitchen shears look great and they are your forge to table. And it says they are $19.95. So we're talking about $20 for, yeah. for kitchen shears. I, I'm like, absolutely well, a mistake. <laughs> so disclaimer, those are not handmade. Kitchen shears okay. are best not handmade. You know, gotcha. we're using high-grade tool steel, the same stuff you're going to find in garden shears and all sorts of kitchen shears, because they're meant to last a very long time and take a lot of abuse. They're beautiful. Those are one of the few products where I won't yell at you if you put it in the dishwasher, but <laughs> they are my go-to tool when I'm actually outside at the grill. Uh, I spatchcock chickens. That's my go-to thing when I'm cooking out. It's easy. It's quick. I can throw it on when I get home from work and have it done for an evening meal, even on a weeknight. And they are just troopers for spatchcocking. But they're really nice multi-tools, and they were a fun little additional product. We wanted something affordable, something to add to your knife kit, if you will. We've sort of been over time, ooh, what else are we missing? 
what can we add? What can we find? What can we work with? What can we source? Just like our sharpening stones, we'd be remiss to not have a sharpening stone when we're constantly yelling at people to keep your knives sharp. We've slowly grown the line over the years, but now we've got over 25 different products, including a partnership with Vans. Being a California boy, I love my Vans shoes. And those were a collaboration with my high school where I was in the culinary program. Another random product that we added to our lineup, but they're kitchen rated. So they're a non-slip and they raise money for the local high school culinary program, which has been a really fun endeavor. I was actually out uh, in Washington, D.C. at a national culinary competition because they won the state level just a few months ago with my high school team. I was going to ask you, how do you keep your knives sharp? So for one, take care of your knives, hand wash them. These knives cannot be thrown in a dishwasher. Don't leave them in the sink because you'll cut yourself, but also because they do have a chance to rust if they're exposed to too much moisture. They're high carbon on the exterior. It'll protect the core steel, but it'll start to look pretty tarnished. So you want to hand wash those, hand dry them right away. And then to keep them sharp, I recommend honing them every month, every two, every three months, depending on how often you're using it. And then take it to a whetstone whenever you can. I find it kind of therapeutic to sit there and turn on, honestly, it's a soccer game usually, and sharpen my knives. They're on a whetstone. I'll go over to my parents' house and sharpen up their knives, whatever needs to get done. The more often you do that, there's no such thing as too often. If you're using a whetstone by hand, you're going to have just that first cut after sharpening your knives is orgasmic. You're going to love it. You're going to get through that tomato. You're going to get through that crispy chicken skin, that pork belly, whatever you're doing. You're going to love it. So sharpen as often as you want and as often as you have time for. But for the most often home cooks, once a year, will probably keep you going. Is it a dad joke if I say the way you keep your knives sharp is you have them study very hard? Oh, I've seen the bumper sticker that says my <laughs> knives are sharper than your honor students. That one, that one was pretty good. Pretty good. You know, <laughs> and for everybody, excuse me, Glenn, for everybody, who, there is a, a video on fortunetable.com to how to keep your knife sharp. If anybody doesn't know how to do it, watch the video and give you instructions. Yeah, Noah, I have to say that. So my wife is 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 a cook not a professional chef or anything, but she's very much into cooking. A lot of what I do in the kitchen is certainly learned from her. So when I was using the knives the first time, I didn't put it in the sink because I knew better. But as soon as we used it, she didn't let it sit. She's like, you got to do this. You got to get, we got to make sure it's, I mean, it is kept exquisite. And the other thing though, that I did once wrong was, and I, and I guess Anybody who uses knives should not do this. I cut up all the, you know, let's say I was cutting up vegetables, let's say green peppers. And then you won't, you know, you want to get them all into a pile. So I used the, instead of the back of the knife to kind of move it, I used the blade. Yeah, that was bad. I got yelled at. <laughs> That's a classic culinary school mistake. Everyone starts off doing that. So even the professionals still do it. It's a guilty habit, but you got to use the back of the knife or you can get away with using the front of the knife if you angle it away. So oh, you're really? coming over your food like this, mm-hmm. as opposed to like this, you're going to roll your blade down, but you bring it over at an angle where you're not going to just push into your board and scrape your blade. But that's easily undone by sharpening your knife. So Noah, your knives, pretty new to the industry. And of course, you hear all the time about the you know, uh, Henkel is a, is a very popular knife. I think Wurstoff or something. I mean, you hear about other types of knives. Who's the target 
with your knife? I mean, obviously, one day you'd like to have forged table knives be the world leader in knives. But until that time, who is your target and how are you marketing your knives? So I'll correct you there on one thing. There is no future that has forged to table as the knife in everybody's kitchen because we could never keep up with that. At the end of the day, we're still hand making the knives to this day. We've got a new forge than when we started, uh, Alex, same team. We've got a new building, which is incredible. We've been able to scale up there, which has been impressive, almost four times the square footage. So we're ready to grow. We're ready to get in a lot more homes. But our market, the people that we're reaching are professional chefs. We've loved connecting with the culinary community around the world, chefs that we knew, myself and everyone on our team that we've worked with, and then connecting with new people that just find us online. We love the industry. We love supporting the industry. We work a lot with the National Restaurant Association and things like that. And then on the home cook side, we really love to be sort of the middle tier. We love to connect with people that want something better than an Ikea knife. They want something better than that base tier Mercer, like we started with in our culinary school kits. But they're not going to spend three or $400 on a Miyabi or on a global knife or on mm-hmm. a big Japanese brand or small Japanese brand. We want to be a functional blade. So a culinary student can take it to class and use it. And if somebody goes into the knife kit and disappears with it in the night, they're not going to be heartbroken. They're going to be sad, but we still want to be affordable. We want to be an actual functional knife that gets taken to work every day on a line, that gets taken to class, that gets taken out to the backyard or taken on a camping trip. So that's sort of the niche we want to be in. We want to be reliable and a consistent product for that. Are all these knives made in Japan? No. So our forge is in China. So Alex is Chinese, third generation Chinese. He studied in Japan for about five or six years when he was apprenticing. Uh, He came up learning from his dad, but he wanted to get a better craftsmanship for things. Uh, And we're sourcing our steel from Japan. So through his living in Japan, we have a partnership with Takafu, who is one of the premium steel manufacturers. And we were one of the very few, we're very fortunate, have one of the very few export licenses for the Japanese steel to come into China. We're using a German style of steel for our cleaver and our bench knife, so that's a little different. But we're using the Japanese VG-10 Takafu steel for most of our knives. That's what we started with with the Guto. It's a really great introduction to carbon steel. It's not too reactive. It's not going to go crazy if you cut a tomato, but you still need to take care of it. But it allows you to get a really fine edge. And our stuff is really proudly made with our fantastic craftsmen in China because it's a small family team. We've got about nine people at the Forge right now as we grow We've been apprenticing blacksmiths over the last couple of years to add to the team. We've still got three of the guys that were working there with Alex's dad uh, long before he or I were, you know, doing this. But it's been a really exciting time to grow. And we're really proud of the product we're putting out. So I just want to make sure it's all handmade still, right? Absolutely. Well, not not the kitchen shears and not the sharpening stones. That's a different Mm -hmm. process. But all of our knives are completely handmade through the process. We've got some photos on the site of a couple of the team members going to work. Hand hammering, hand finishing. Yeah, and we're hand sanding all of the handles and fitting everything custom. So especially, I don't know if you two have compared the knives that you got, but my favorite thing to look for on most of our knives that have the Oxhorn ferrule is you'll get striations and patterns within the bone. And you'll get sometimes completely white sets of ferrules. And they're just beautiful to me. And I love the little patterning that you get because it's an natural product. And it's really cool to see the variations from one to the other. 
You know, I, I want to mention because they're handmade. I want to make that clear because I know you're probably too young for this. But Len and I remember the TV commercial with the Ginsu knives and the old, all Chinese, <laughs> Japanese, and, and, you know, it's all mass manufactured. You know, buy now, get another set for free and, and all that. But this is the real quality product. I wanted to stress. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, we're up against the big guys. Mercer and Global and all of those are big old factory made knives. And they have great high quality products and they have really low tier products and they've got the whole market. They're the big guys. Not going to ever debate that. But we're trying to be a thoughtful product that really goes into the hands of someone that cares about what they're doing in the kitchen. Barbecue uh, chefs will love your product because, I, for instance, July 4th made a few racks of ribs. You turn them over to, to find the, you know, the easiest way to find the bones is turn them over. but actually used one of your knives on on those ribs and it just sliced them beautifully i mean it's just he, he used my life <laughs> <laughs> yes i cooked i was the cook at jeff's house but yes i did and uh they, they're just a really good knife makes a huge difference because i have cut ribs with with bad knives and it you know, you get the you get the jagged edges. You maybe there's a couple of pieces of I don't know cartilage or whatever that you 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 can't go through. But your knives are sharp. They feel good in the hand, and and I feel like we're doing a commercial, but it, it's true. <laughs> it's really true. They they're great. Well, and I'll jump in because I know there's going to be people listening to this saying, "Wow, this is a commercial. You can sharpen anything, and you can." <laughs> But it's about keeping your knives sharp and the carbon levels in steels and the nickel and the various components that get away from your full stainless knives, they make them a joy to sharpen too. Because I don't know if either of you have done it yet, but if you have a honing rod sitting around, whether it's ceramic or a diamond rod, a couple strokes, and you're just going to see how easy it is, how quick it is, almost instantaneous to get that blade back up to just a razor performance and to maintain it in a home kitchen is much nicer than maintaining a full stainless knife that's made out of the same stuff that's in your refrigerator. But no, you, know, you don't want to use. No, no, I'm now I'm interrupting you. <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead. You don't want to use. Go ahead. I just think you don't want to use a full stainless knife, the kind of thing that you'd use for hacking through the jungle to slice a delicate heirloom tomato or to treat right. that brisket you just babied for 14 hours. You want to take good care of it with a knife that is up to standards, but ours are. You know, ours will get dull. All knives will get dull. Someone's lying to you if they say it won't. But you can sharpen it and take care of it really easily and just keep an gr- incredible edge for years. So, and I hope you both find that over the next couple of years that you keep going back to them. Yeah. That the honing rod that you're talking about, is that actually sharpening it or is it, I was told that it, it like takes something off of it. It's not that there's something that accumulates on a blade that that actually removes. Yes. So what's happening when you're honing a knife, in most cases, is you're taking the burrs off. So a blade looks like this, and on a microscopic level, it can start to look like this. And what you're doing is realigning both sides of that knife, so you get a sort of a clean cut instead of that tearing that you mentioned and Mm -hmm. that ripping. And that just happens over time, naturally, on all types of steel as you do that. But the precision and the tightness of the angle you're able to take it through is going to come through while you're uh, honing that knife, and depending on the steel composition. Well, Noah, this has been a, a fantastic education for us and our listeners. The name of the company is Forge the Table. 
forge2table.com. And Noah, why don't you tell us all your social media and how people can get in contact with you? Absolutely. So we're Forge2Table on just about everything. You can find us on TikTok, Pinterest, Instagram, Facebook. You can sign up to our email list where you can get new recipes online. You can keep in touch with us there. And you can always send us questions on Instagram or through our website and see what we're up to and ask us about knives. We're always happy to make recommendations and guide you through the process of getting your first ever Japanese style knife. Well, excellent. We wanted to give a shout out to Chef Ray Sheehan for connecting us with you because this has been, like I said, a very educational interview. I mean, who knew so much about knives? And uh, we really thank you for joining us. Let me ask you one more question, Noah. I know Jeff Jeff was about to wrap and I just, but I have one more. Keeping them in your kitchen. I know you have like a magnetic strip of some sort that you could put them on. Is it better to keep it on this magnetic strip, a butcher's block, in a drawer? What's the best way to store your knives other than in the beautiful box it comes with? So there is some personal preference that comes into it. And there's some constraints of the environment. Not everyone has space for a magnetic block on their counter or the wall space for a magnetic uh, bar on their wall, which we do have both. And I recommend those to show them off. What I'll warn people about is if you're storing your knives in a drawer, make sure it has a divider to store them safely upright. Usually they're cork. There's a few different options there. If you're tossing your knives in a drawer, stop that. Cut it out because you're going to cut yourself. You're going to hurt your knives. You're going to dull your knives. You're going to chip your knife. You're going to cut your drawer. All things are wrong with that. And then for the people that have bought a knife set that comes with a big old block from Costco or things like that, and they're storing the knives in there, that can work. But I will warn you that over time, it will dull your knives to be sliding it in against the wood in there. It's just like one stroke on a cutting board every single time you're going in and out. And over time, you'll think, why are my knives dulling a little faster? And those are hard to clean. So don't even think about the bacteria that can be growing in that. That's why I recommend... If you're in a drawer, you can take that out and clean it every once in a while. If you're on a magnetic block, you know that it's dry. You can wipe that down very easily and make sure there's no uh, sketchy business going on inside of your countertop knife block. That's great advice. And again, Noah, we thank you for joining us on Baseball and Barbecue. This has been a, a great interview. Thank you very much. Yeah, yeah thank, thank you, you so much, much for having Noah. me. Thank you, Noah Rosen. Forge to Table. Go to their website. The knives are beautiful. I mean, they really yes. are. Yeah. Yes, Noah Rosen, the pride of Johnson & Wales University. <laughs> it's Noah Rosen, and coming in right at his heels is your son, right? Am I, yes. am I right, Jeff? Yes. All right. And everybody should know that we are brought to you by Bet Online. It is where the game starts, but we're not starting. We're ending. And how are we going to end this one? With the song, Baseball Always Brings You Home, by the poet, Shel Krakowski, and the musician, Dave Dresser. And we will see you next week on episode number 203.